from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer who takes the medium of the short story through the labyrinth of multiple genres and multiple narratives. He's joining me today to talk about his new collection of short stories entitled Amphetamine Daydreams. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Mike DeFrench. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, reaching out. Really excited. Absolutely. I really enjoyed your psychological roller coaster of collected stories that is aptly named Amphetamine Daydreams. And I'm looking forward to exploring your thought processes and the crafting of the stories. Well, yeah. Can't wait to talk about them. So uh, getting right into it, in your story, Attractive Smiling Woman Holding a Spatula which is a very interesting name, but it makes sense what you get into the story. You paint a very terrifying picture of a man that comes across a picture of a young model when he's looking through stock photos for a work-related project, then all of a sudden snaps and decides he has to kill this woman. What's even more disturbing than him just out of the blue snapping and becoming homicidal is the obsessive way that he tracks this woman down using ways that are very plausible in the real world. So when you wrote this story, did you have to basically do what Will Graham did in the novel Red Dragon and kind of empathize with the killer? And if so, how do you get into that frame of mind and how do you get out? So um, with that story, I actually intentionally tried to not go deep into the actual killer, like his character, like deep in his brain. I feel like there's a couple of paragraphs, maybe like four total in the story where it's from the point of view of the girl, the model. And I feel like you get a better sense of who she is as a person in those short paragraphs than you do the entire rest of the story from the point of view of the character. Like I intentionally wanted to kind of scoop back and see him from more of a distance and then focused more on what sparked the idea. Like if somebody just found some random person on the internet, just a picture of them, and then they wanted to find them, how could you do that? So most of the focus on writing his point of view was more on how is he doing this creepy, stalky internet stuff 
less on who he actually was as a person. And when I finished the story, I thought about going back and kind of like adding to his character to build it out a little bit more. But, you know, people don't want to be that deep into the mind of somebody really messed up. They're really good. And, you know, like a James Patterson thriller or something where there's like this super messed up serial killer or something like that, like in the Alex Cross novels or with Hannibal Lecter or stuff. Most of the books are from the point of view of the detectives and the cops and stuff. And the creepy serial killers are normally a step back in how deep you get into their mind or their shorter chapters, shorter bursts, just because, you know, it can be pretty uncomfortable to read that type of demented mind for too long. And it's worse writing it. <laughs> yeah, I guess now to hear you talk about it, it's not so much that you get in the psyche of the killer as far as what's motivating him. I guess it's mainly when it's from his perspective, it's just the obsessive way he goes through all the, you know, I don't want to give spoilers or anything like that, but just it's not like he's hacking into some police database or something really complicated. He's doing stuff that really anybody could do. You just kind of have to get really obsessive with it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that I guess that's more what I was referring to was like getting into that mindset of somebody even if you're not getting into the homicidal part, that like really obsessive, like I've just got to find this person. So I'm going to, you know, go however long he went without sleep going through all those different steps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think my own paranoia of like, you know, putting myself out there on the Internet, you know, just kind of like being out there. You think of all types of weird paranoid stuff when you put yourself out there. So I kind of just channeled all of those fears into <laughs> a horror story. And then I'll just say a spoiler alert, I guess. But I mean, I started to feel weird and guilty as I was writing it because I was like, this is like blueprints for how to stalk somebody. I know. If you really want to. <laughs> and so that's what inspired the ending. <laughs> yeah. Good things don't happen. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm kind of the same way. I'm not as bad as I, like what you're talking about, I think is a reasonable fear. I got to the point where I was looking into books on cybersecurity, like I had a VPN at one point, which I don't use anymore because it makes everything either run buggy as hell or slow as hell. It's just dude, dude I did the exact same thing. I bought a however many years worth of a VPN, mm -hmm. use it for like a month. And now it just pops up. I'm like, oh, my gosh, just Shut up yeah. and go away. Don't even use it anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I just can't even think of a valid reason to use it. I mean, most websites have security certificates. You just click on the little padlock and you can view it. So, yeah, I can definitely see where you kind of channeled those fears into the story. The next story I wanted to talk about is The Dark. And that's an aptly named story because not only is it the main thing that these two individuals are dealing with, but it is figuratively dark as hell. Listeners at home, be forewarned. This is one of the most intense psychological horror stories I've ever read. You combined aspects of darkness, claustrophobia, starvation, survival of the fittest, and cannibalism, which, you know, may or may not happen, but there's some implication of all those aspects. The climax of the story was even more disturbing because you realize that what your character extracted by force was actually pretty much the raw end of the deal and was going to slowly lead to a more horrific death. So, I mean, 
where did the inspiration for this story come from? <laughs> because I know what we were talking about previously. You were like, I try to stay out of the mind of the killer, but this scenario is just dark as hell. Where did this come from? Yeah, and then I don't think I intentionally held back at all writing this character from the dark. I think it's first person, and you're hearing his thoughts, you're getting bits of his past, bits of his personality, even though it's been degraded because of, you know, the torture scenario that he's in. Um, so the idea was from, I do these uh, short story challenges on Instagram and TikTok, and it originally came from this old trick that writers used to use, like, if you don't have any story idea, you take a dictionary, flip to three random pages, take the first word you see on each page, and you build a story out of those three words. So I made a video of that, and it was more just social media thinking than writing thinking. I was like, this could make a great video series. Like, post this and say, hey, put three random words in the comments, and I'll uh, do a story on it. Do reply with a video, put it on Substack, have this cool, like, loop going. And so somebody commented the three words, clueless, gift, hungry, clueless were the gift. seed for that story. Okay. I remember thinking, I think I was thinking hungry. And so I thought of like two dudes in a cage starving to death. And then the gift obviously was the way out. Uh, and then clueless is using the gift, not how you would have wanted to. <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, I'm not going to give the ending or any spoilers, but it's just listeners at home. Like this has so many different um, variations on how you think it's going to end. Like you think it's two men and it's kind of like that subhuman animal state that you devolve into when you're just trying to survive. And they think they're thinking clearly, at least the person whose point of view it's through thinks he's thinking clearly and is doing what's best for him. But the tables get turned so, so horrifically in ways that you don't even think about until it's kind of fleshed out and explained to you at the end. So uh, tip of the cap to you for uh, embodying some pretty dark elements. I'm a big fan of the uh, French extremist movement. So the darker, the better. So it takes a lot to impress me. <laughs> The uh, the next story that really had an effect on me was the Tapestry of Time. And it's weird how the story element of the Doctors Unstuck in Time initiative, kind of reminiscent of Doctors Without Borders, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Kind of put time-traveling doctors in the same position as aliens. And the stories of alien abductions always involve the person that was abducted being experimented on. And if you were one of the North American indigenous people in the story, I'm sure the act of the doctors holding them down and injecting them with needles would be a very similar experience. So without giving away any spoilers, with regard to what the professor said, am I about to give away a spoiler? No, I just want to say, hold on. Okay. Because I never, ever, ever thought of that. And you just gave me a fantastic idea for a follow-up short story from okay. the point of the view of the Native Americans, like after everything's done. Okay. And they're like telling the stories to All the right. grandkids of these like <laughs> alien scientists that came and injected uh -huh. them. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that's what I thought of. It's that like, is man, great. You know, because these doctors are traveling back in time and they have this technology that these people can only dream of or couldn't even dream of. So, yeah, that's kind of what I thought they were probably envisioning when they had these strange men strapping them down and injecting them with things. But 
without uh, giving away any spoilers with regard to what the professor said about time being a tapestry. Did you get the story idea from any research into like quantum physics, like Stephen Hawking or Sean Carroll, or did it come from mainstream literary or movie sources? It uh, actually came from my dad. This was one of the first things I ever tried to write. Um, I don't know. He had the idea of doctors trying to go back to vaccinate for smallpox. And then, you know, the whole thing that happens historically there that's like unplanned for or whatever. Trying to say what happens without spoiling. So he had that idea. And I think I was in grade school when he had that idea. And he... I had already been like trying to write books and stuff then, not completing anything, but getting a good first four chapters done every now and then. You said this was in grade else. school? Yeah, I think it was in grade okay. school or early high school, something like that. So he told me this idea and he was like, I can't write it. I need you to write it. And so I tried to write something way back then and it turned into some weird Marvel movie sci-fi thing that went eight chapters and then I never finished. And then once I started really getting into short stories the last few years, uh, I was like, man, I'm going to take that idea and do it as a short story. So it was really just my dad's idea. And he had the tapestry of time concept when he thought of it, too. But as far as like my own personal research into time travel, the only real thing that I have ever found deeply fascinating that I don't think I've written about yet, but I might have is time dilation. I remember watching this, like, understand time dilation in eight minutes YouTube video. <laughs> I watched it and I was like, what the fuck did that just mean? But I also knew that I was like that close to actually understanding what time dilation is. And that's uh, more, I think, an Einstein theory than, than time has to dilate 10 centimeters before the universe yes, can. Exactly. <laughs> no, no, no. So if anybody doesn't know what time dilation is, it's the whole idea. You've probably read it in sci-fi where if somebody travels at the speed of light, everybody back home has aged a hundred years by, mm. but they've only aged, you know, 10 years, whatever. Like I think it's an avatar. I mean, you see it all over the place too. It's in the Ender's Game saga and stuff like that. Well, like the way I heard it explained was I watched a documentary on it and they were talking about how if you could get some sort of space vehicle that just goes the entire circumference of the Earth and just keeps on going and keeps on going, you could theoretically get it to the speed of light. But there is a fixed law that nothing can go faster than the speed of light. So when you approach the speed of light before you can surpass it, time slows down to keep that law in effect. So if you were in this vehicle that was able to surpass the speed of light, time would slow down for you. So would the aging process. So I forget what the figure was, but I think they said if you were in this vehicle for two weeks, maybe I think it was like everybody down on Earth would have aged like 40 years. That is just fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. I could, you, you could do a, a thousand short stories. Yeah. Just from that concept of different people experiencing this like that's insane can you imagine just going two weeks and everybody at the entire world around you i mean look at from 2019 to 2022 how insanely different the world is how, how much stuff happened like imagine going popping in 40 years in, in two weeks that's just that's an incredibly fascinating yeah well another one of your stories that really it illustrates technology really 
messing with the fabric of reality is your story to never say goodbye. That one was really interesting because my favorite kind of horror is psychological horror. And the reason for that is because I'm obsessed with human consciousness. Like the nonfiction I read is all philosophy of mind, neuroscience, theoretical physics as it pertains to consciousness. You know, is consciousness like a fundamental element of the universe? So in To Never Say Goodbye, a man is given the chance to continue to live with his wife, even though she passed away. The only downside being that she's a hologram with a personality generated by artificial intelligence. So this story really tears at the fabric of what consciousness really is, because if what we call the self is merely the result of parallel processes in our brain, and we find a way to produce the same operations with artificial intelligence, what difference does it really make whether or not the personality we're talking to is being generated in the meat of a brain or the chip in a computer? So what are your thoughts on consciousness and maybe in relation to this story? Do you think uh, consciousness comes from the meat in our heads or do you think it comes from somewhere else? I think it comes from somewhere else. I think that it's tied to the meat in our brains, at least while we have meat in our brains, but then after that, it's still there in something else that doesn't have any sort of physical existence. And so to go further, I would say that the computer program that pretends to be a consciousness is not conscious. And we're talking about stuff that is very close to actually being there. I mean, there are talk bots that I feel like could already pass the Turing test. Um, but I wouldn't consider them consciousness. I wouldn't consider them equal to human beings in that sense. They're still just a program. I, I think that consciousness, it's a spiritual thing. It's not just a neurons firing in your brain in the right order creates who you are. Who you are works with the neurons firing. Because, I mean, obviously, if the neurons stop firing, you're mind stops working. Like if you get a lobotomy, your brain's not working the same way. So they are tied together intricately. But I don't think that a algorithmically generated personality is the same thing as a human being. So do you think like maybe the human brain is more of like an interface? Yeah, something That's, like that. It's how consciousness receives information from the outside world, basically. Yeah, receives it and interacts with it, interprets it. It's not just the brain, it's your entire body is working with your consciousness. Every cell in there is working with that, which I, I believe is a spiritual thing, a, a soul, if you will. Gotcha. Well, so when I sent you a confirmation email, you revealed that you were changing the format to volume one of Amphetamine Daydreams. Yes. So can you tell us what prompted the change and... A little bit about what the changes are. Um, so there's there's a few things that really tied into me going full into this format. I had some of these ideas. Like one of the changes is that in addition to it just being a collection of short stories, there's a what I'm calling a meta narrative. It's like a sub narrative, and it's kind of um, presented in a. Have you ever read House of Leaves? No, that's the book you mentioned, right? Yes. Yeah. So House of Leaves is like, they could have called it House of Annotations because it's like a book within a book within a book. I mean, there's frame narratives galore. 
So the main crux of that book is a dude breaks into an apartment, this dead guy's apartment, finds this manuscript that he was working on, which is a scholarly work on a documentary movie that doesn't exist. And the guy that was writing it about the documentary is blind. And the guy that found all of this is a junkie. And so he's like annotating that. The guy's annotating the movie. The movie doesn't exist. There's all these like weird real world interconnections and references to real people and real documents. And it's a really good book. I really like it. So the presentation of the meta narrative was heavily inspired by that. So it was also inspired by me just like writing this introduction. And then, of course, this is why I stick to short stories, because if I go, I'm going to write a nice short novel, it turns into like a 10 book series. So I stick to <laughs> short stories, because uh-huh. even when I write an introduction to a collection of short stories, it turns into a on-stretching meta narrative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I actually had a lot of fun with that. And I just started coming up with more and more and more and more ideas of what I could do with the meta narrative and how I could make it interesting. And then have you ever heard of uh, alternate reality games, ARGs? Um, would that be kind of like, uh, what was that? Cicada? Black Mirror. Oh. Black Mirror. Uh, the Black Mirror series on Netflix, they had yeah. something called Bandersnatch, which Bandersnatch. was, kind of, like, which was yeah. kind of like a choose your, is that something different? Okay, so 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 that's the choose your own adventure, which I also okay. have incorporated into okay. the new volume as I've coded and put on my website a choose your own adventure addition to the meta narrative. It kind of continues off where it leaves off in the book. Um, but a alternate reality game is... Trying to think of how to explain it. It's like uh, if you Google cicada and then it'll probably pop up on Google, but it's like four numbers, three, five, one, four, something like that. I can't remember the actual numbers, but I'll just read you uh, a little bit from Wikipedia. Nickname given to the entity that posted three sets of puzzles online between 2012 and 2014. So there were these like cryptographic, you know, like code breaking type of puzzles that also involved going to real world places and and like solving this huge elaborate puzzles. And it's about this like narrative that incorporates the real world and also pretends to be not just a story. It pretends to be this is real life. Like this is an actual thing. Like people say that Cicada 3301 was a recruitment program for like the CIA or MI6 to find like the brightest minds. But I mean, this shit was posted on 4chan it was just some fucking guy mm-hmm. creating a story and having fun i think i don't think it was a cia <laughs> recruitment program but the actual puzzles were insane and if you look into this it's really fascinating and interesting so uh, i started getting inspired by incorporating alternate reality games so that's where the experience of solving puzzles and discovering the narratives of stories spills out into the real world and it blends fiction with reality to the point where you know some people can't tell which where does the fiction stop and where does the reality start it's interesting so i wanted to do stuff like that in the meta narrative and then the other big thing was ai art Like I just started discovering that and getting used to that and figuring out how to like um, get the art to create what I wanted and make sure that it is 
in a royalty free format so that I can just use it freely. Mm-hmm. And once I got those two kind of learning curves out of the way, I could do so much with art now that I couldn't before because I could never afford that. And being able to fill it with artwork and with all this extra stuff and then kind of like learning how to code on the side to create these little kind of text adventures and, you know, incorporating the ARG stuff. I was like, this is so much better. I got to scratch the first rendition of the book and do this because this is what I want to do going forward. This is so much fun. I can go in any direction that I want. I could do anything that I want with this. This is way more future proof and way more fun. And I think it's more fun for people to read too. I think it's more fun There's more to discover. You get a book, there's secrets in it, but you go into the internet and you got to solve puzzles and stuff and play games and and figure stuff out. I think that's a lot more fun than just a run-of-the-mill short story collection. And then also the format is heavily inspired by old pulp magazines. Yeah. Um, The actual layout of the book itself is not in, it's very much in the style of old pulp magazines. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked uh, the PDF you let me look at, the uh, pictures associated with the stories. Yes. Yeah. Were those uh, produced Everything by the... is AI generated. Okay. Yeah. Everything. Those were interesting. And I'm kind of kicking myself for not doing it beforehand, but what is the relationship of that QR code that you're supposed to scan at the end to the uh, meta-narrative? So it will go to an unlinked page on my website, thefrenchwriter.com. So supposedly, if I did everything correctly, the only way that you could access that web page is by scanning that QR code or knowing the URL and typing it in yourself. Mm -hmm. There's no links to it. You can't find it on a search engine, nothing. So it takes you to that, and that is a text-based adventure game that uh, I wrote and coded and all of that jazz myself. And it continues nice. the meta narrative. It's weird. You play as me. <laughs> and you taught yourself to code. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. What about the updated cover? I know you do um, AI uh, artwork for your short stories, but that new cover, is that AI as well? Yeah. Okay. So I've got, so does that mean I have like a rare collector's edition now? Yes, or? you do. Awesome. Yeah. I was telling my <laughs> wife about it. And they're like, she was like, people are going to be bragging about how I, I have the black edition. Yeah. No one has the black edition. I'm like, yeah, maybe. But yeah, I'll send you one of the new ones. Oh, all right. Once I get some author copies in. All right. Sounds good. Well, I was uh, looking through your bibliography and I found a book that looks really interesting that I wanted to check out called Requiem for a Black Rose. That's not your newest one, is it? That is my newest novel. Newest novel. Okay. Yeah. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So that was my idea when I started was I wanted to practice doing a slow burn suspense. I wanted to have something that started off, you know, creepy, but with relatable characters and also more wide cast of characters. The last few novels that I wrote were first person. So the only point of view was ever just one character. So I wanted to write something with multiple point of views that converge, kind of explore this whole town that I had sort of been building out more and more in my short stories. And I wanted to do something with witches. 
I find the folklore around witches, especially in like the colonial age or the colonial era, stuff like that, to be terrifying. And I wanted to kind of explore that terror in a modern setting. Okay. When you say colonial, would that be circa Salem witch trials? Yeah, or maybe, yeah, around then, a little bit before, kind of, you know, the early Puritans settling in the colonies. So there's uh, elements of severe religious indoctrination. So uh, not so far in this one, because it is set in the present day. I wanted to evoke, have you seen the movie The Witch? Yes, yes. Yes. So and I think I'm like the only one I know of that's seen it that actually liked it for some reason. I adore that movie. I think it's one of my favorite modern movies that I've seen in the last decade. I mean, I put it kind of in the same level as The Shining. Like, I thought The Witch was so good. That scene where the young boy is, I guess, in like the attic or somewhere upstairs and is being tormented by, well, I guess technically what they think is happening is that he's having some sort of religious spiritual experience, but... In reality, what's probably happening is like demons are toying with him and making him kind of have this mock spiritual experience. Yeah. The, I forget what he's intoning. He like barfs up an apple or something. Does he? I don't know. But he spits something out of his throat and then gets yeah. into the weird family accusing each other. I mean, yeah. could, that movie is so layered with nuance. I think mm -hmm. that it's worth watching multiple times. Not to mention that the language is like period accurate. So Yeah, I had to turn I on also, subtitles. <laughs> yeah, I recommend <laughs> subtitles big time. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, of course, everything just leads up to where, what was it, the goat's name? It was Black something. Yeah. God, it's been so long since I've seen that movie. But yeah, where you're like, oh shit, it's all real. It's happening <laughs> right now. The devil is talking to her. Yeah. And she just strips and goes out there. And sorry, if you haven't seen this movie by now, I'm sorry, spoiler, just gets in the circle with the rest of the witches. And I think that's why that group, the uh, Satanic Temple, kind of made that the subject of one of their yearly celebrations. They screened that movie because they kind of viewed it as like the liberation of women. Yeah. From, liked by a lot of uh, feminist movements. So, yeah. Solid fucking movie. Solid I love that movie, so mm -hmm. I wanted to do my own thing with that. Uh, so that's what uh, Requiem for Black Rose is. It's also, you know, my problem with writing novels. I was like, all right, this is going to be 50,000 words. If I'm lucky, 80,000 max. I hit 80,000, and I'm like, dude, I'm like one quarter of the way through this book. <laughs> so I had to divide it into multiples. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, this probably in the next couple of weeks or, you know, by the start of October, I'm going to get cracking on book two. If you read it, you will notice why it can only be written in the month of October. All so right. I'm kind of like constrained to these times of the year. Okay. Well, so from looking over your bibliography, it looks like you write within the genres of horror, sci-fi, and I guess I could say fantasy, right? Do you consider mm -hmm. some? Yeah. So what is it about those genres that interest you? And what is the connection between the three of them? So the connection would be that I grew up 
reading those. You know, I grew up, well, especially watching, you know, Star Wars and Lord of the Rings had a huge, huge impact on me. It's still my favorite movie series and my favorite book series of all time. But, you know, my interest in the future and what could be possible with science fiction was always there from the moment that probably I first watched Star Wars or something. It's all a spaceship. And I was like, man, that's what it's going to be like in the future. Like people are just like going to hop around to different planets and go on these crazy adventures, meet aliens and stuff. It's amazing. And I know the ones that were in the collection that you read were mostly kind of more depressing views of the future, but when oh, I, read I love dystopia. <laughs> I think I'm a masochist. I love <laughs> really. Yeah, I Dis just love dark, disturbing, you know, just nihilistic shit. I don't know why what that says about me, but <laughs> dystopia when it is done well is probably the single genre that affects me emotionally the most uh, for like weeks afterwards. Like if it's like a really convincing, realistic, depressing vision of what the near future could be, uh, that tends to mess with me a lot. But I mean, that's a sign of good art, you know. Um, but I do love the optimistic science fiction a lot, too. A lot of Asimov and uh, Bradbury and uh, a big influence on amphetamine daydreams as just like a vibe is Philip K. Dick. And so his wasn't necessarily depressing, dystopian sometimes was sometimes was more adventurous and just fun stuff and then just weird kind of psychological mind-bending stuff too he's a good balance between you know 1984 and ray bradbury martian chronicles so would you say those are your writing influences yeah, definitely. Ray Bradbury is a huge one, not necessarily from his writing. I wouldn't say that I write a lot like Bradbury in terms of my style, but his philosophy on writing is 100% my philosophy on writing. I get everything from Ray Bradbury. In terms of my style, I would say... Uh, the bigger influences would be stuff like Philip K. Dick and H.P. Lovecraft in terms of the horror, not in terms of the prose, but in the terms of, you know, like in the dark, there's this ambiguity or this subtlety in the hinting of what actually the true horror that's going to happen is. I get that from Lovecraft, I think. And, you know, like Edgar Allan Poe, it's more classical horror that didn't show. And I always think that not showing or just leaving the suspense of whatever the person is thinking in their mind is more terrifying than what you're going to describe anyways. So the more tactfully you can lead to the edge of not describing in full detail what the horror is and leave it in the mind, but still give us satisfaction. That's the Goldilocks zone for horror, in my opinion. Interesting. Well, you are an extremely prolific writer, especially when it comes to short stories. So we just spoke about Requiem for uh, Black Rose, but you have other novels as well? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So do you prefer short stories or novels as far as writing is concerned? Um, right now, I 100% prefer short stories. Short stories are 
you know, it took me forever because I grew up reading novels. I never read short stories. And then growing up with aspirations to write, I never even thought of short stories because I was like, I've never read a short story. Those obviously don't get published. Those don't do anything. So I'll just write books. But once I looked into all of the bajillion ways that you can actually sell a short story, which is far more ways than you can sell a novel, I was like, okay, I got to write these. And then bunch of attempts at, you know, all of my earliest short stories, you can tell they just feel like a chapter one or something or a prologue to a novel or, or a series or something like that, just because that's what I was always reading. That's just, you know, where my mind went to. But eventually I, I got it down. And once you get to the point where you sit down and you write an entire short story from beginning to end, and it's not like a word vomit draft. It's like a pretty complete thing. Like you had to go through and fix typos and give it a read through, but it's a clean first draft that is very solid and it's done in a single day. That's an incredible feeling. It's addicting and you want to do it again. And then the thing is, you're already done. You don't care. It took you a day. So even if it ends up blowing, like <laughs> even if nobody likes it, who cares? You, you spent a day of your life on it. Yeah. If you spend three months working on this novel that becomes like with a short story, if you write it in a day, you don't have time to think about it or care about it or it get this special spot in your heart, you know, where it's this important story that means so much to you. It's just you start it, you finish it, it's done. You're more excited about the next thing. You don't really care about that one anymore. We spent three months on a novel that's become super important and you've thought about it a ton and, and you know, there's so much of you in it. And then that sucks. That hurts a lot. Man. <laughs> it's way easier for a short story that you spend a day writing uh -huh. to suck than a novel. Uh -huh. Yeah. So being such a prolific writer, I imagine you don't have to wait for inspiration. I imagine your mind must be churning with ideas all day long. Is that correct? Um. Both yes and no. So, I mean, so it's churning with ideas, but a lot of those ideas that are churning around in there are, hey, here's this epic eight-book fantasy sci-fi adventure series that, you know, it's going to take eight million words to write. I'm like, get the hell out of my mind right now. Yeah. I don't want to write you. <laughs> but for short stories, I don't have to wait for inspiration to strike because I have just rigorously taught myself to... You got the time, you sit down and write. If you don't have a story idea, find three random words. This is from Ray Bradbury. It's word association. So a lot of times they'll take the three random words and take the first word and say, what does this make me think? And I'll write a few words about what this evokes in me and then take the next one. and What that evokes in me emotionally, visually, so on and so forth. A couple of paragraphs in, you've got a character, you've got a setting, you got a thing. You got the start to a story. Just keep going from there. Make it the pivotal moment of a character's life. You know, that's always a good short story. The most important moment of a character's life. So once you get a character, think of this is the most important moment of their life. Write that in like a scene to somewhere between one and five scenes. Beyond five scenes, you're probably getting way too far into it. It's going to be longer than a short story. Well, so is this your like, you had mentioned that 8.30 is after your children have gone to sleep. Is this like your designated writing time? We um, can schedule it? If I can. Mm -hmm. I'm, I like writing more in the mornings, even though I don't 
wake up in the mornings, but when I do and everybody's still asleep and I could be like chugging coffee, really <laughs> alert. Yeah. I'm a lot more productive then. But, yeah, so am you I. Know, <laughs> especially if I'm like in the middle of a project, I'll keep going at night. If it's a novel or something longer like that, I like to hit 2000 words a day. So fit it in anywhere that I can in any sort of snippet until I hit that 2000 words a day, even if it's at one o'clock in the morning. Well, so I've sampled your short stories in the form of a published collection, but what do you have going on on Substack? I'm not even really familiar with that platform. Uh, so Substack is a, um, I think it started as a newsletter platform, but it was really early on adopted by journalists that wanted to go independent. I think Barry Weiss from the New York Times is publishing on Substack. Matt Taibbi is another kind of prominent journalist that moved to Substack. There's other ones. I can't think of them all. I don't really follow that many journalists. I try to follow more fiction writers. There's not a ton, but it's growing all the time. Chuck Palahniuk, mm -hmm. Fight Club, yeah. he's on Substack, and he actually serialized his most recent novel on Substack, but then he also does ongoing stuff where he just kind of, it's sort of like a, a blog and his commentary on different things, reviews of stuff. So what I use it for is kind of just a platform to host all of my short stories and then also build an email list, build a community. Substack has built-in community features, much like a... Sorry, I keep moving further <laughs> away from the mic. What is Joe Rogan always do? Can, can you please just talk? Yeah, us? yeah. Just, please just, just give, talk give right, right up in there. <laughs> um, so what I love about Substack as opposed to posting it like on my own website or something, all the email list stuff is taken care of and they have pretty good analytics for your emails. They have built-in podcasts, which I just posted my first one today. My podcasts are just me audio reading my short stories. They have the ability to then take that exact same MP3 that you use for your podcast, add it into your post as a voiceover that people can just like in the app of Substack, they can click the play audio and then close the app and it'll keep playing just like any podcast would. So it's really nice for short stories. I can't believe more people aren't doing exactly what I'm doing because I think it's perfect. And I think Substack is just barely at like the rock bottom of their potential. And I think it's going to do very well. I'm very hopeful for this platform. And I know it's got lots of quirks and it's not perfect yet and lots of stuff they need to add, but they are adding and they are improving it. I, I see the updates from them every month or so. They're constantly fixing things and adding things. And I think they really care about freedom of speech and freedom of like artistic expression. Like they don't want any censoring kind of going on except for like you know um they have their explicit rules obviously like yeah. you can't like call for literal violence or yeah. anything but you are free to speak your mind and um you know write whatever story you want and put it on there and then it also has built-in monetization stuff kind of like uh patreon I always thought of this as Patreon for writers, but then you have complete control over which of your content is paid content and which of your content is free. 
everything. Yeah, I did some rooting around and I did like some of the splatterpunk authors that I read that I don't think any of them put short stories up, but they do. I know Aaron Beauregard, Beauregard and Daniel Volpe. Uh, are both on there as well as Andrew Post. That's who I was trying to think of. I had Andrew Post on the show looking at his. That's what I noticed is he had some short stories that were free and then some that you had to be in his paid subscription mm-hmm. to access. Yeah. So I think that's cool that you can do that to where it's not all paywall or nothing, you know? Yeah. And then uh, even on the paid post, you can um, set where the paywall breaks in like to the line. So you can oh okay so you can read a you can read like the first three the, paragraphs the or yeah, yeah you can and and then you can set that to however long you want you could set it to be only the last sentences behind a paywall <laughs> that's cool but uh, yeah I really like Substack as a platform and that's kind of the hub of all my stuff and then it's morphing into finally what I think is a really killer physical product. Uh, but it's all still going to continue to flow from the Substack. Well, in the realm of editing, do you edit your own work or do you use a pro? I edit my own work and I also despise editing with a passion. <laughs> and I, I, I have used pros <laughs> on occasion for a few books and it's incredibly expensive for a good editor. And in my experience, the books that I had professionally edited and the ones that I did myself sell the exact same. So at this point in time, I don't see the point in going further into the hole for no return. Um, I think once I'm making enough money to actually pay for an editor, like I can't take you know my own money out of my pocket from my paychecks and put like 500 bucks into every book or whatever you know they can be stupid expensive one way that i have found that really helps is beta readers and arc readers if they catch typos and stuff because you can stare at your own work read it through a thousand times but you know they all blur together like these errors in the text you just scroll over them just like you did when you wrote them and you don't notice them and they're not caught by a program word spell checker they're not going to catch stuff where you spell a word correctly but it's the incorrect word or you know you just have a sentence that might be grammatically correct but makes no sense for the context stuff like that uh, you really need somebody else's eyes to yeah, that's not that's catch that stuff far removed from the creation of it yeah yeah you you read the same thing so many times you're blind to your own errors. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast one time, and I forget who was being interviewed, but the writer was saying that when he was done with the first draft, he would set it aside and go work on something else, and then he would come back to it, but he would change the font and the font size so that, I mean, obviously it's still the same content, but his brain interpreted it as a different piece of work. So he said he was able to suss out typos and the word w-r-i-t-e when it should have been r-i-g-h-t you know yeah that's very that that's an interesting way to do it um for me personally if anybody is interested in self-editing the most effective method that i've found is reading it out loud Mm. Mm -hmm. you will catch so much that you won't catch just staring at it and reading it in your head if you sit there and read 
it out loud, especially for a short story. Not that bad to just sit there and read a short story out loud. It takes like 30 minutes, an hour. Redline it as you go and then go in and correct it. And then you're good. Publish it, send it to a magazine, do whatever you're going to do with it after that. I would never recommend paying for a professional editor for a short story. <laughs> yeah. Unless you're loaded, dude. Now. Yeah. Well, so what is your uh, writing atmosphere? Am I looking at it right now? Yes. Most of the time it is here at my desk. I will write in bed, but that's a more recent thing. I, I used to not. I used to always be at my desk, but I'm trying to take the approach of instead of doing marathon sessions where I write for hours in one go, break it up into 15 minute sprints where you just kind of like focus full on on writing and no distractions, barely even pausing to take a breath for 15 minutes. And I have been very productive doing that method so far. Well, is there anything you do unrelated to reading and writing that you feel makes you a better writer? Maybe something with your day job or just some alternate hobby? Um, nothing in the day job, but I was a pretty chaotic and rambunctious teenager and early 20s and so on. <laughs> uh, and I feel like living life definitely gives you good story ideas because I think there's a big misconception around the whole idea of write what you know, as in like, well, but I want to write dragon fantasy. I, I can't write what I know. I think writing what you know means you put yourself and uh, your real life experiences and emotions, stuff like that, into the characters. That's what you know. You know who you are. You know how you feel. Uh, it's not that you know Indianapolis instead of medieval whatever fantasy land. So having life experiences and being a crazy teenager definitely gives you lots of good writing fuel. Mm -hmm. uh, outside of that, just, you know, any consuming of story in any form, whether it's from somebody or a TV show or folklore, or I got these books of... Indiana, ghost stories and urban legends, stuff like that. I love urban legends because they all have a seed of truth in there. It's fun to explore. You got tons of story ideas from that. Well, I didn't notice any, but I could have easily overlooked it. Do you have any books on audio? Um, I do not yet, but I've been trying to get down a process of recording my own audio Mm -hmm. And I am really obsessed with, when I first got into audiobooks, I was really, really obsessed with radio dramas mm -hmm. with like the full sound effects. There's no like narration in most radio dramas. It's just like watching a movie with your ears. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've always loved that. So whenever I imagine recording audiobooks for my short stories or books, I always want to incorporate those radio drama elements to so them. You you wouldn't just be reciting it, like doing a voiceover. You'd want sound effects and like ambient music in the background and stuff. Yes. Whole okay. thing. Gotcha. And so audio so drama. Got, yeah. Yes. Audio drama. Yeah. Uh, so I have one 
that I've completed that's on YouTube. But if you go to my website, thefrenchwriter.com, there's a page at the top called Audio that will link to that. It's one of my really early short stories. It's a kind of like a sci-fi adventure story. I imagined it as, you know, like kind of super pulpy, light sci-fi, kind of like a, a mix between Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the TV show Workaholics. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> Workaholics. So, so I, I kind of did that where I um, narrated it myself and added in all these ambient noises and music and sound effects and whatnot. I even did some like uh, voice effects for the robot characters and stuff. And then just recently, today... I think I put my first podcast onto Substack, which is just, you know, audio versions of my short stories. Mm-hmm. And so it was just a quick 3,500 word short story, pretty simple, uh, with some simple, creepy background music in it. Uh, mostly I was just trying to get the audio sounding good. I didn't spend like a ton of time tweaking all of the post-production extra stuff like the music, sound effects, etc. Mm-hmm. But going forward, I, I really want to have the full thing. I love that stuff. Yeah. Well, so do you have any classical training in creative writing or are you just kind of a born writer? So no college, but I have taken a lot of workshops and they're all workshops that are taught by professional writers. If I'm going to pay money for a class, I'm not, you want to, I better know who, who the hell <laughs> the fucking writer is yeah. that I'm paying to teach me. <laughs> like, I don't want somebody that has never sold a book to teach me yeah. how to sell a book. Right? Yeah, right. right. I want, I want somebody who has been doing it for years and is kicking ass at it. Anybody who wants particular? to teach me. Uh, yeah. So Brandon Sanderson actually has a ton of free lectures. I'm not the world's biggest fan of Brandon Sanderson because I have ADHD and I like short things, but I have read a few of them uh, and they are very good. And what he says in his lectures, um, I think is very good for any writer to at least hear. What genre does he write in? Uh, He writes epic fantasy. Okay. Yes. Like huge, thick epic fantasy books, (laughs) Uh, but he is killing it. He is so productive. I think he's the most productive writer working right now. He is in his zone. He's doing a great job and then also has the time to, uh, he like teaches classes at, I think it's Salt Lake University uh, in Utah. I don't know if that's the actual college, but it's some combination of those words. (laughs) Um, <clears throat> University of Salt Lake City, whatever. But he teaches creative writing there and does full courses and he puts them for free on his YouTube channel. So anybody can go watch those lectures and he's a good teacher. He knows what he's talking about. He's a very good writer. And yeah, I highly recommend that. Other one is Dean Wesley Smith. Oh uh, my God. I love his book, Writing Into the Dark. Yes. Holy yes. shit. Yeah. I've got, I've actually got all of I've never read any of his westerns, but I've uh, read all of his nonfiction, the little short ones. Yeah, that are all on writing. Yeah, God, I yeah. love. I he, love those books. Um, he has an entire workshop lecture, like so many fucking classes on Teachable. Uh, look them up on Teachable. Incredible because they teach really well 
the actual craft of writing and then in addition the business side of writing like I've been for the last 10 years learning nothing but the craft like I want to make my craft better I want to be able to write a good story good book whatever I want to become a better writer and better learner and now I'm like well fuck dude I have no idea how to fucking sell a book I have no idea how to, you know, if I start selling a lot of books, I have no idea how to transition into, you know, my day job into a writer. Like I get my health insurance for my work. Like how the hell do you get health insurance as a writer? Like how do you switch over? How do you do any of this? Uh, how do you handle the taxes? How do you handle contracts? He has classes for all of that. Awesome. They do the full thing, craft, business, motivation, inspiration, everything. I think those guys are, are great classes. And then also I recommend reading books by writers that you love that are about writing. On Writing by Stephen King, Zen and the Art of Writing as uh, a collection of essays by Ray Bradbury, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Absolutely amazing. Highly recommend. 10 out of 10. And then his follow-up book to that, Turning Pro. Every writer should read those. Mm -hmm. Bird by Bird is another really, really good one. Those are just the ones I can think of off the top of my head. But yeah, books and online workshops. You can find so much online for free or for a little bit of money. You can get you can get a lot, especially if you splurge for like lifetime deals or whatever. Get the whole package. Well, so which one of your books are you the most proud of thus far? Um, Whether it be a novel, short story I gotta collection. say right now it's the Amphetamine Daydreams. This whole weird experiment that I'm doing with it, I think is it's this weird culmination of so many different artistic endeavors sort of uh, meeting in this confluence of insanity and weird speculative fiction, horror goodness. Um and it, it's like in its infancy still. So I have incredible hopes for what it's going to grow up to be. That's a, a description, I guess I should say, that I've heard thrown around that I don't really understand. Speculative fiction? How would you define that? Speculative fiction is kind of like a broader version of science fiction in my mind. It's kind of like it encompasses all of science fiction and then some like horror, but that is like light on the supernatural kind of side, supernatural mystery, maybe stuff like that could fall into speculative. Any sort of like weird dream, like psychological elements can fall into speculative and that can fall into fantasy, sci-fi. So it kind of blends all these things together, sort of like a another umbrella term kind of stretches into horror, sci-fi, fantasy, psychological, mystery, supernatural, kind of like spreads its fingers in all those pies. Okay. Well, being someone that writes in a few different genres, what is your favorite genre to write? And what is your favorite genre to read? Um, my favorite genre to write is, I, I would probably say horror. And I would go with like, I don't know. It's just so much fun to tell a scary story. You know, you've been doing it since you were a kid. Like, at least I have. Around like, the campfire. Yeah, I remember <laughs> sit, sitting up late at night with your cousins and being like, dude, I heard this fucked up story that, like, if you go under the bridge over on 106th Street, 
at midnight, there's this one-armed hobo that will sit there and he wants to rip your arm off because he's missing an arm. And like, I'm pretty sure that was a real story that one of my cousins told me. And I was like, what the fuck? There's a <laughs> fucking one-armed hobo wants to take my arm? Yeah. Yeah. We had this thing over in a kind of a rural area that's about maybe eight miles down the uh, highway from where I am now. When I was a kid, there's some old abandoned bomb shelters that uh, they said that there was this group of Satanists that would come <laughs> and have like human sacrifices. <laughs> that, was See, kind of, I, that was the kind of weird shit we talked about when we were kids. <laughs> I love that, though. I like fuel off of that. I love urban legends and especially like local stories. Like mm -hmm. if I know personally somebody that has a ghost story i'm always gonna ask them like i need to hear if you've ever had a paranormal experience yourself like i am fascinated by that by the way have you ever had a paranormal experience the closest thing that i can think of to having a paranormal experience was a really really low stakes form of precognition I remember specifically having a dream about being in this kind of theater where there was a big light bar going across the stage with lights going on and off and flickering. And there being a bunch of people on the stage that jumped off the stage and went into the crowd and started like dancing around and interacting with the crowd. I remember vividly having that dream. And then you, you know, saw Cirque du Freak. Well, no, not Cirque du Freak, Cirque du Soleil. No, actually, it was uh, when I was a young kid and I went to SeaWorld. We saw, SeaWorld. We saw some like old 50s hairspray type of uh, musical performance. And, At SeaWorld? Yeah. Yeah. They used to. I, I don't know if they still do now. I haven't been to SeaWorld in forever, but they used to have shows. And Was uh, it hair? Because hair was the musical where the hippies ran out and I, started dancing. I don't know. It was so long ago. But when that happened, it was like deja vu. Like, holy shit, this is what I dreamed about. I fucking, yeah, I fucking dreamed this. Now, I've since then read that you can have what's called confabulation, where when you see it and you feel like you're having this deja vu, you kind of confabulate this false memory yeah. of having a dream prior. So, you know, who knows? But for some reason, that really stands out. But no, I can't really say that I've ever had a paranormal experience. How about yourself? Yeah, tons. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Maybe I'm just uh, too... Maybe I'm just too closed-minded, like I shut myself off to the possibility or something. Um, I don't know. I feel like I used to never thought I ever had a paranormal experience. And then I started working with a couple of guys that just talked about having weird stuff all the time. What anyone would call a paranormal experience, seeing a ghost, seeing a UFO, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. If you have something like that precognition state that you were describing and then don't try to rationalize it away a ton and just kind of like sit with it for what it was and what it felt like. How many other paranormal experiences might you have experienced if you don't go straight into the left brain analytical, how do I fit this into real world categories? Because there's a lot more to existence than just the physical world. And you're experiencing kind of all of that all at the same time. So I think every person ha is having paranormal experiences on a somewhat regular basis, at least once or twice in their lives, at the very least. It's all a matter of 
recognizing it or accepting it for what it actually is instead of rationalizing it away into a logical, quote unquote, logical explanation that doesn't make you scared. Well, so you said your favorite to write was horror, correct? I think it is very fun. Very fun. Do you ever go to the extreme end of the spectrum as far as reading horror to like splatterpunk, like Edward Lee, Volpe, or Beauregard? I have not yet, but I know that those guys are, I mean, as far as that indie horror realm, those guys are absolutely killing it right now. So I need to, and I mean to. You know, uh, and I, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, judging from reading Amphetamine Daydreams and the little that I've kind of glanced from you just from our conversation so far, I think you would really dig Beauregard's it's a novella. It's called All Smiles Until I Return. I think you would really, because it deals with the afterlife, and it's really dark, and uh, he's got a really interesting spin on the afterlife. And it is pretty brutal. It is splatterpunk, but... Uh... Yeah, so the brutal part is the only thing that I'm... Like, I don't mind extreme gore. I just don't find it... Well, it's it's not so much gore, per se. It's just the acts that happen. And it's got some gore, but it's not like it's just vivid descriptions of... Of, uh, All right, nice. I just got it. Oh, did you really? <laughs> yeah. All right, Beauregard, I just got you a sale. You owe me a commission. <laughs> that's a, yeah. I got the Kindle version, so oh, that's okay. at least like 15 cents for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, what about uh, film? I know you have young children, so uh, I imagine like most people I know that have kids, you're probably more up to date on the latest Pixar movies, but... I am. Do you, oh, you, dude, I, you want to know about uh, Peppa the Pig and uh, <laughs> I bet. you know stuff like that. I can keep you posted. Uh-huh. No, films like, so I kind of hate the movies that come out now. It's like you got nine superhero movies and then one something else that is normally pretty crappy. And then it just repeats that cycle. And it's just like, you know, the dude that I like is the guy who did The Witch. Mm-hmm. I forget his name. But then he did The Lighthouse. And then most recently, which I haven't seen yet, which I'm really looking forward to watching, is The Northman. Uh, so that's all the same guy. He writes and directs his films. I really liked what I saw from him. But I love the medium of filmmaking. I love watching movies. I think movies, when they hit that movie magic quality movies are incredible i love them i just don't see that from today's it's all ten thousand hours of a whole bunch of computer programmers programming fancy graphics yeah that's why i look elsewhere to the more obscure stuff that people like gasper away and decor now and uh lagier are are putting out trying to think of no way. I think you would probably like Climax. Climax is about a, a dance troupe. It's a bunch of people that have just been auditioning and then put together in this dance troupe and they've been practicing and practicing and practicing. And I think it takes place on like a Friday where they're finishing out practice for the week. So they're having a party. Well, one of them spikes the punch with LSD. And so the whole thing is just them succumbing to this nightmare scenario of tripping, oh, tripping no. their asses off on LSD in this closed space where there's like a snowstorm going on outside. So they're kind of stuck there. Oh, that sounds horrifying and amazing. You probably have to email me 
Yeah. That because I will forget. This is another reason why I like short stories is because my memory is so like, yeah, it's day to day, man. Uh-huh. That's all it is. And so if, you know, something stretches on for weeks, I forget characters' names, eye colors, hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget all types of stuff. But so for movies, like, so what would you say are some of your like top five or so? Top five? Like just, just any genre. Oh, any genre? You know, I love even the most recent one, The Conjuring. I love all those movies. I just think they're all good. Even the one uh, The Devil Made Me Do It, which was I just came out not too long ago. I love The Conjuring movies. As far as Gaspar Noé, I love all of them. But my top would be uh, Climax, Irreversible, and I Stand Alone. And, you know, Decor Now, you've got Titane and Raw. Uh, Lagier, Incident in a Ghostland, and my all-time fucking favorite. It's so crazy. Gaspar Noé is definitely my favorite writer-director, but my favorite fucking movie is by Pascal Lagier. It's called Martyrs. That movie is just mind-blowing. Man, I, I don't know if I've seen a single movie of the ones that you just recommended. Not I'm so gonna much? Need, I'm going to need need a list all right <laughs> yeah if i if i go down like my favorites of all time i i think uh the witch is probably the most recent uh favorite if i'm going horror i think the blair witch project is fantastic and that is the kind of horror that i was talking about earlier where it's more about what you don't see that is scary it's about what doesn't happen or what you think is going to happen it's the suspense that is scary rather than the visceral imagery And the the experience is kind of basically tailored to each individual viewer by doing that. Yes. Yeah. And the idea of the found footage, this is kind of like how H.P. Lovecraft did a lot of his stuff. It was like, this is a a found document. You know, this isn't a story. This is this is real. And so I think those two elements combined can make really good horror. My other favorite writer director is Charlie Kaufman. Being John Malkovich, Mm, um, adaptation. My favorite movie of his is Synecdoche, New York. If you really want a weird, dreamlike experience, watch that movie. It is so good. Wait, what is it now? Synecdoche, New New York. York. So I, I think there is a town or something in New York called Synecdoche, but then he writes it differently which is a word that means something different. And the main actor is Philip Seymour Hoffman, who does a phenomenal job. He does a phenomenal job in whatever he does. I, I think I, I think he's my favorite actor. When he died, I just about cried. Yeah. <laughs> my God. I mean, we were robbed of some, you know, we missed out on some amazing future performances. Same with Heath Ledger. I think he had a had a great yeah. career ahead of him as a as an artist as an actor. Yeah, it's two people heroin took out. Jesus. Yeah. Mm. What are some other like recent movies that really blew my mind? The Irishman. I actually really loved The Irishman. I love that type of crime drama, mafia drama stuff in movies, especially if it's based off of true stories like uh, Irishman was. And Irishman was. Based off a true story that, you know, doesn't really have an ending. Like, nobody knows what happened to, uh, what's his name? Hoffa. Yeah. Nobody knows. And, you know, he presents this very compelling 
version of of what happened. Mm-hmm. And it's just so good from start to finish. I know it's a really, really long movie, but, you know, I was so turned off with modern movies. And I remember watching that one and just being like, man, I forgot that movies can have this like magic quality, like the movie magic. Like they can be like the take you to a different world, a different time period, really suck you in and like get you really, really involved in uh, some good suspense. Uh, Lord of the Rings is also, I think, the the greatest movie series ever made, personally. So tell me uh, what the life of Mike DeFrench is like outside of writing. It is pretty much just like the average, you know, working dad life. Two kids, got a little girl, just turned one a few days ago. And then I got a boy who's about to be four in January pretty chaotic. I still work like a nine to five. Wife works nine to five. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of like the average life fit in writing wherever I mm-hmm. can. And then eventually, you know, I'll become a gajillionaire writer <laughs> and live my life however I want. But until mm-hmm. then, when working have, both grinds. When you have that fuck you money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Everybody wants Someday. the fuck you money. Yeah. <laughs> That's the goal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mike, it has been great talking with you. Yeah, man. Yeah, great time. Thank you so much. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Maybe reiterate some things we've talked about already? Uh, Yeah, I would say if you want to keep up, definitely just go to defrenchwriter.substack.com. That's kind of the hub of... All the new stuff is coming from there. And then from there, you will be on an email list. So I can tell you about all of the new physical edition stuff that will be kind of revealed here soon once I catch up with everything that I've been doing. So thefrenchwriter.substack.com. And then uh, I... I'm usually active on TikTok and Instagram, but uh, those have both kind of fallen to the side as I'm trying to get this new version of Amphetamine Daydreams, the physical edition uh, set up and going. But once I get a workflow going, I'll start to be active on everything again. But Substack is, if you want to follow, that's where to go. Well, listeners at home, all links will be in the description. And Mike, thank you again for being on the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay tuned for the next episode where I will be joined by screenwriter Robert Allen Diltz. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always... Thank you for listening. See you next time. On a Saturday, sneaking out of the door like you know the way. A thousand times before, back at light of day. I trail the smoke in your show, hope to go it goes. I can tell which side Oh, you figured it out down to a science. Hide it. I give it to you just for trying.
Oh, no.